Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the iRhythm Technologies, Inc. Q2 2021 Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Ms. Lee Salvo. Please go ahead. Thank you all for participating in today's call. Earlier today, iRhythm released financial results for the second quarter ended June 30, 2021. A copy of the press release is available on the company's website. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that management will make statements during this call that include forward-looking statements within the meaning of federal securities laws, which are made pursuant to the safe harbor provisions of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Any statements contained in this call that are not statements of historical fact should be deemed to be forward-looking statements. All forward-looking statements, including, without limitation, those statements related to the impact of COVID-19 on our business, expectations for recovery and processing clinical backlog, market opportunity, product performance, market expansion and penetration, productivity improvements, reimbursement, release of clinical data, operating trends, and our future financial expectations, including revenue, gross margin, profitability, and operating expenses, are based upon our current estimates and various assumptions. These statements involve material risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results or events to materially differ from those anticipated or implied by these forward-looking statements. Accordingly, you should not place undue reliance on these statements. In addition, we will refer to adjusted EBITDA, which is defined as EBITDA excluding stock-based compensation expense. Adjusted EBITDA is a non-GAAP measure that is used to help investors understand iRhythm's ongoing business performance. For a list and description of the risks and uncertainties associated with our business, please refer to the risk factors section of our most recent annual and quarterly reports on Form 10-K and Form 10-Q, respectively, with the SEC. This conference call contains time-sensitive information and is accurate only as of the live broadcast today, August 5, 2021. iRhythm disclaims any intention or obligation, except as required by law, to update or revise any financial projections or forward-looking statements, whether because of new information, future events, or otherwise. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Doug Devine, Interim CEO and Chief Financial Officer. Doug? Thanks, Lee. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us. During our prepared remarks today, I'll start with a quick review of second quarter highlights and then update you on progress we are making on our key operating priorities. Dan Wilson, EVP of Strategy and Corporate Development, will cover reimbursement. And then I'd like to welcome Mark Day, our EVP of R&D, to the call to share some of our current Zeal platform advancements and initiatives. After that, I'll close with a more detailed review of Q2 results and our outlook for the remainder of the year. We'll then open up the call for your questions. Starting with Q2 highlights, our results reflected continued demand for our Zeal platform, as well as solid execution on our operating goals by the entire iRhythm team, who are working tirelessly to meet the needs of our physicians and patients. During the second quarter, revenue was $81.3 million, representing a year-on-year increase in revenue of 59.8% and sequential growth of 9 0.4% over the first quarter. ZOAT had a record quarter, reaching approximately 10% of overall company revenue for the first time. Registrations for our ZEO services exceeded our capacity, particularly during the March, April, and May timeframe, which resulted in processing times extending by approximately a week. This led to a higher than usual number of units awaiting clinical processing at quarter end, which limited reported revenue growth in Q2 21 and increase some of our costs. We expect to be back to normal turnaround time by the end of third quarter. We also made continued progress in identifying and planning for cost efficiencies that will be implemented in the medium term. These were outlined in our last call and I will cover them more a little later. We ended the second quarter with 255.7 million in cash and short-term investments which highlights the financial strength of the company. Investing for long-term growth remains top of mind, and importantly, we have the financial resources to do so. 
Lastly, we had two new 510K clearances during the quarter for our next-generation hardware platform and our fourth-generation deep-learned AI algorithm, one for a new and improved design of our Zeo monitor and the second for updating artificial intelligence capabilities. Both are, bu- both are key building blocks for our scalability and operational efficiencies. The new Zeo monitor is designed to significantly improve patient comfort while the advancements to our AI capabilities are expected to further improve rhythm and beat diagnostic accuracy. Notably, our new AI algorithm release is already delivering benefits, including contributing to improvements in our unit processing times and our ability to return to more normalized report turnaround times by the end of Q3. We are pleased with these highlights and also encouraged by the progress we're making on the focus areas we discussed last quarter. As a reminder, these include driving continued demand for our Zio service, leveraging our platform to expand both our market share and our addressable market, making adjustments to our business model that we believe will provide operating efficiencies that will deliver sustainable profitability and growth, and pursuing multiple paths toward reimbursement that are more in line with the benefits and underlying value of our technology. During the second quarter, we continued to see opportunity in the United Kingdom, which again outpaced overall company growth. As you may recall, last September, iRhythm was the recipient of NHS funding as the winner of its Artificial Intelligence and Health and Care Award. That award was recently disclosed to be 4.8 million pounds, or approximately $6.8 million, and has enabled us to commence trials of our Zeo service in selected sites across the UK. Combined with the NICE recommendation last December, we have seen very strong revenue growth in the first half of this year as we brought new grant sites online. As we move into the execution phase and bring fewer new sites online, we expect revenue growth in the UK to be more measured for the remainder of 2021. Further, we are in the process of building out our operational infrastructure within the UK that can support this future growth and take our learnings and successes from the UK to serve as a playbook to other countries in the future. We are also making progress on our new manufacturing facility, which will house all of our production capabilities starting in 2022 and enable increased scalability and enhanced operating efficiencies in the medium term. And on product development and innovation, as we've highlighted in the past, iRhythm has long established its ongoing commitment to improving the patient and provider experience demonstrated by our significant investments in next-generation capabilities across our diagnostic platform. The two new 510K clearances we announced during the quarter are great examples of this work. Overall, we're very pleased with the financial and operating results in the second quarter and remain focused on continuing to make progress on our priorities over the remainder of 2021 including with regard to our priorities on reimbursement, which Dan will discuss. Dan? Thank you, Doug. As part of the reimbursement discussion, I'll cover where we are at with our efforts to establish national pricing with CMS, discuss our continued engagement with the MACs to establish more appropriate Medicare pricing, provide an update on commercial pricing, and then close with a summary of how we are collectively approaching reimbursement. Starting with CMS national pricing. As we shared in a press release last month, CMS published the calendar year 2022 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule in mid-July. In the proposed rule, CMS did not propose national rates for long-term ECG monitoring CPT codes. Instead, CMS proposed to continue with contractor pricing for calendar year 2022. The proposed rule is followed by an open comment period before CMS issues the final rule in the November-December timeframe. In the proposed rule, CMS noted that they continue to seek public comment and information to support future rulemaking to establish a uniform national payment for these codes by further understanding the practice expenses incurred in providing these services. During the open comment period, iRhythm intends to provide comments and will continue to work with CMS in support of its efforts to establish national pricing that fairly represents the costs incurred to provide these services 
the unique benefits they provide, and in consideration of continued access to these services for Medicare beneficiaries. On a related note, CMS commented separately in the proposed rule that more and more services under the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule include innovative technologies such as software algorithms and artificial intelligence, and recognition that the current pricing methodology employed by CMS does not account for these technologies. We are encouraged that CMS is recognizing the difficulty in pricing vertically integrated AI-based business models like our own within existing pricing methodologies. We will use the open comment period and other channels to provide our perspectives and suggested paths forward. iRhythm has also joined other industry stakeholders and societies representing AI solutions that aim to support healthcare delivery by providing input on possible solutions. In summary, we will be using the open comment period between now and mid-September to provide comments to CMS's proposed rule and are joining other industry stakeholders to continue support of potential national pricing for calendar year 2022. However, we believe the more likely outcome is that we will remain with carrier pricing in 2022 while continuing to pursue national pricing in the following year's cycle for calendar year 2023. Now turning to our ongoing discussions with Novitas and the other regional MACs, since our last earnings call in May, we met with several other MACs to garner their support for evaluating an alternative pricing model. We understand that the MACs are communicating and will likely work together to evaluate the pricing of the long-term ECG codes. We remain encouraged by the willingness of Novitas and the other MACs to explore this alternative pricing model, which we believe is a better representation of the true cost of delivering the service. We, along with other industry participants, will be submitting cost data under this alternative pricing model to an independent third party who will validate the data and submit to the MACs. We currently anticipate the alternative model information will be submitted to the MACs in the September or October timeframe. We cannot provide any assurances that Novitas or other MACs will update pricing based on this information, nor the timing of any potential actions. As an update on our commercial payer discussions, nearly all of our commercial payers have recontracted our ZOXT service since the establishment of the Category 1 codes on January 1st 2021, with most crosswalking to pre-existing rates. Overall, commercial pricing in the second quarter of 2021 was consistent with commercial pricing in the first quarter of 2021 and was down low single digits on a percentage basis when compared to 2020 pricing. We currently do not expect commercial pricing to change materially in the second half of 2021. As we look to 2022, we believe that our commercial payers have more flexibility in pricing of services and will consider the overall clinical and economic value of ZOXT. Thus, we are focused on providing the evidence that demonstrates ZOXT's high diagnostic yield, the efficiencies the service brings to their patient populations, and the improved clinical and economic outcomes. We have a strong health economics and outcomes resource team that is focused on producing these data, and our recent partnership with the National Association of Managed Care Physicians will add to the robust data that we continually share with commercial payers. As mentioned previously, however, we do believe that if we are unsuccessful in improving Medicare rates before calendar year 2022, it is prudent to expect that some of our commercial rates may begin to be negatively impacted next year. To close on reimbursement, we have multiple avenues available to potentially achieve higher Medicare reimbursement, and we are actively pursuing all of them. We believe we have the right strategies in place to achieve this, but recognize that it may take some time. We are confident in the value of our technology platform and the clinical and economic benefits that it delivers to patients, physicians, and to the healthcare system. And we are hopeful that the value of the ZOXT platform will ultimately be recognized under the existing Medicare reimbursement system. Regardless, we will continue to pursue other opportunities 
other opportunities to monetize the value of our platform through new indications such as Silent AF, new products such as ZOAT and the technology we are developing with Verily, geographic expansion, as well as other alternative revenue models that will all incrementally reduce our exposure to Medicare fee-for-service over time. We look forward to sharing more details on each of these efforts as we make progress. I'll now turn the call over to Mark, who will discuss those recent FDA clearances, how they further bolster our competitive positioning, and why we are even more excited about the future of our ZEO service. Mark? Thanks, Dan. As Doug noted, in the second quarter, we received FDA clearance for two new technology platforms that represent Ireland's future. The first clearance was for the ZEO Monitor, our third-generation biosensor, while the second was for our next generation of deep-learned algorithms. Together, these clearances demonstrate our commitment to leading the category we first created over a decade ago, and I'd like to share more details about each. I'll start by describing the ZEO Monitor, the first product clearance of this new hardware platform. The ZEO Monitor is a smaller, thinner, and lighter version of the current ZOXT biosensor, a device that more than 3 million patients have relied on to record a comprehensive view of their heart's electrical activity over two weeks. While the ZOXT device still provides industry-leading performance, the new ZEO Monitor meaningfully improves on it in many important ways. This new form factor is nearly 60% lighter, 25% smaller, and 30% thinner, and also includes a new breathable and waterproof outer layer, all of which allows our custom adhesive to confidently and comfortably secure to all patients. These refinements were designed with our patients in mind and with the understanding that more comfortable wear improves compliance, which in turn leads to even more complete and accurate diagnostic data. Again, this is a biosensor platform that will become the cornerstone of our service, and we intend to pursue additional product clearances on this platform in future. Next, I'd like to describe the clearance we received for our second generation of deep learn ECG detection algorithms, our fourth generation algorithm overall. Since 2018, Ireland has been a leader in using FDA-cleared deep learned algorithms for classifying and characterizing diverse heart rhythms. With this latest clearance, we're now using AI to detect beats, beat types, and heart rates. We've also further enhanced the deep learned rhythm detection capability we previously introduced. This new clearance amounts to a significant improvement in our AI-based detection capabilities, enabled by the greater than 750 million hours of curated heartbeat data in our database, likely the world's largest repository of labeled ECG recordings. Our new deep learned algorithm was recently deployed, and we're already seeing positive impact to both diagnostic accuracy and the scalability of our service. We see this latest clearance as further differentiating us in the market and is a key step in developing new products and services fundamentally enabled by our AI expertise. We look forward to sharing more about this in the future. Finally, I'll quickly touch on the meaningful progress we've been making in our partnership with Verily. As a reminder, the context for this partnership is the understanding that silent atrial fibrillation is a key public health challenge, particularly in the United States, and that detecting this type of asymptomatic atrial fibrillation likely benefits from a long monitoring duration. With that perspective, we're working to build the first offering of a medical-grade, long-term, continuous, and non-invasive solution to detect and characterize atrial fibrillation. The solution we're developing utilizes Verily's StudyWatch platform in combination with our algorithm analytics, clinical backend, and workflow tools. We're on track to submit to the FDA for 510 clearance by the end of this year. When we receive clearance, we'll enter a market evaluation phase to establish the efficacy of the solution through clinical evidence and to explore the optimal business model associated with this potential paradigm shift in monitoring. In many ways, we expect this process to be similar to when we first brought the ZEO service to market a decade ago. That is, a thoughtful investment into clinical evidence that lays the foundation to change clinical practice. We look forward to sharing updates as we progress along this journey. In sum, these two new clearances and our ongoing product development efforts represent our commitment to driving innovation to extend our leadership position in the ambulatory monitoring industry. From our start, we have been an innovation-focused company, and we continue to see many opportunities to improve and expand our technology platform 
while delivering important and valuable benefits to patients, providers, and the healthcare system. Now, I'll turn it back to Doug to cover our second quarter results and the second half outlook. Doug? Thanks, Mark. As I noted earlier, total revenue in the second quarter was $81.3 million, reflecting year-over-year growth of 59.8% and a sequential increase of 9.4% over the first quarter. Gross margins were 68%, down 1.6% year-on-year and 0.4% quarter-on-quarter. Adjusted EBITDA, defined as EBITDA less stock-based compensation expense, was negative $4.6 million, an increase of $4.1 million year-on-year and $0.6 million quarter-on-quarter. Cash and short-term investments were $255.7 million at quarter-end, down $6.6 million from Q1-21. Taking a more detailed look at the second quarter financial results, revenue grew sequentially with quarter-on-quarter growth of 9.4%. Q2-21 revenue growth was a mix of volume growth improvements in collections performance with some contracted and non-contracted payers, and some favorable pricing adjustments for ZOAT. Approximately $4.5 million of Q2-21 revenue was due to improved collections from prior period revenue and higher adjudicated reimbursement from certain player, payers and is not expected to reoccur in future periods. ZOXT in the U.S. drove the majority of our volume growth in the second quarter, while ZOAT in the U.S. and ZOXT in the U.K. outpaced overall company growth on a percentage basis. ZOAT volumes grew significantly quarter over quarter, crossing 10% of revenue for the first time. We saw strong ZOAT performance continue into July and anticipate it will be a growth driver for the remainder of the year. New account onboarding decreased slightly compared to the first quarter of 2021, with June onboarding down as we delayed account launches to focus on reducing our clinical backlog. Looking at new store, same store mix, new store accounted for 25% of year-over-year growth, down from 28% in the first quarter of 2021, primarily due to strong rebound in existing account volumes from the COVID-impacted Q2 2020. Home enrollment was approximately 20% in the second quarter of 2021, down slightly from the first quarter of 2021. Turning our attention to the rest of the P&L, gross margin for the second quarter was 68%, a 0.4% decrease compared to a gross margin of 68.4% in Q1 of 2021. The decrease was primarily due to higher overtime costs related to previously discussed capacity shortfalls offset by volume benefits. Q221 gross margin benefited from approximately $4.5 million of revenue not related to Q221 volumes discussed above and would have been approximately two percentage points lower on a performa basis. Operating expenses for the second quarter of 2021 were $72.3 million, down 7.7% from Q1 of 2021 and up 30.1% year-over-year. The sequential decrease in operating expenses included a $2.5 million decrease in bad debt due to improved collections, a $10.3 million decrease in stock-based compensation offset by an increase in hiring and investments. Both bad debt and stock compensation included one-time adjustments and as such should not be considered representative of cost structure moving forward. Comparing year-on-year OPEX, Q2-21 OPEX was up 30.1% due primarily to hiring and legal spending offset by a decrease in verily milestone expenses. Quarterly adjusted EBITDA of negative 4.6 million in Q2-2021 was approximately flat to Q1 2021 adjusted EBITDA of negative 5.2 million. Cash and short-term investments decreased 6.6 million from the first quarter of 2021 to 255.7 million. Purchases of property and equipment of 5.9 million, repayment of long-term debt of 2.9 million, and EBITDA loss of negative 4.6 million consumed cash 
offset by working capital improvements and proceeds from employee stock purchases. Cash stabilized as claims submissions began to normalize. Accounts receivable increased by 3.4 million from 60 million in Q1 2021 to 63.4 million in Q2 2021, still significantly elevated above the Q4 2020 balance of 29.9 million. Accounts receivable is expected to decline in second half 2021 as backlog claims processing becomes fully caught up. Finally, the net loss for the second quarter of 2021 was negative 17.4 million or a loss of 59 cents per share, compared with a net loss of 20.4 million or 75 cents per share for the same period of the prior year. We are currently holding approximately 10% of 2021 year-to-date zero XT claims, down from approximately 70% as of Q1 2021 quarter end. We have submitted all Novitas claims. Remaining held claims are for a limited number of commercial payers. As we discussed last quarter, we have initiated a process of evaluating our operating profile to identify opportunities to scale more efficiently, increasing our revenue conversion per unit and reducing our cost to serve. Key strategies include reducing device manufacturing costs through design and automation, reducing clinical scan times through increased AI and workflow improvement, improving revenue cycle management through reduced contractual allowances, cost of claims, and bad debt, and finally examining various go-to-market options that would reduce sales and marketing costs per unit. Collectively, we identified opportunities where we believe we can drive double-digit percentage reductions to our cost to serve with reductions fully implemented in the 2023-2024 timeframe, and as a result, build a strong, sustainable operating foundation that can profitably support a range of reimbursement levels. In second half 2021, higher costs associated with capacity limitations will exceed the impact of cost structure reductions. We look forward to sharing more details on our cost improvement initiatives as well as our market expansion opportunities later this year. Turning to guidance, for the full year 2021, we expect revenue to range from $320 million to $325 million, representing year-over-year growth of 21 to 23%. Revenue guidance for the year does not assume any changes to Medicare reimbursement And as previously mentioned, discussions with Novitas and the other MACs remain ongoing. We expect revenue in the third quarter, 2021, to grow sequentially over the second quarter by approximately 3%. Registration volumes in the quarter are expected to be approximately sequentially flat, with revenue volume growth coming from reducing the clinical backlog of ZEO reports offset by non-volume-related revenue drivers in Q2 2021 not reoccurring in Q3 2021. For the fourth quarter of 2021, we expect revenue to be approximately flat as compared to Q3 2021, with growth in registration volumes offset by clinical backlog reductions in Q3 not reoccurring in Q4. Gross margin in the third quarter of 2021 is expected to decline approximately 3% compared to Q2 2021 due to the non-volume-related revenue drivers in Q2 not reoccurring in Q3 and higher costs associated with capacity limitations. OPEX is expected to increase by approximately $13 million in Q3 2021 as compared to Q2 2021 due to bad debt and stock compensation not benefiting from the factors that impacted Q2 2021, growth in hiring and investment, growth in stock compensation due to hiring and retention, and increases in legal spending. Additionally, the next Verily milestone is forecasted to be achieved in the second half of 2021. If the milestone is reached in Q3 2021, this will add $3 million to Q3 2021 OPEX. Additionally, we will continue to pay down debt for our amortization schedule and will continue to build out our new manufacturing facility in the second half of 2021. As you've heard, work is underway and we believe this quarter's results demonstrate the progress we are making. 
I would also note that the CEO search is actively underway with healthy interest. We look forward to providing additional updates as appropriate. The iRhythm team remains focused on and excited about the opportunities we have, and I have the greatest confidence in our future. And with that, we would like to open up the call for questions. Operator? Thank you. As a reminder, to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. To enjoy a question, press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the CUNY roster. Your first question comes from Robbie Martis from J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. Hey, uh, thanks for taking the question. Uh, you've got Saranon for Robbie here. Um, just to start off a question on the reimbursement you mentioned, um, you know, in, in a unfortunate scenario where Medicare rates don't uh, move this year, uh, what can you quantify or kind of size the impact that we would see on commercial rates um, heading into next year? Yeah, we would, this, this is Doug. I mean, we would be speculating, as, as we have said before, uh, if we don't have any further, any favorable movement between the MAX and Medicare as we head into the negotiations for 2022 contracts, that, and that, that certainly puts risk, uh, into there. Uh, you know, at the same time, you know, we have, uh, you know, we're in frequent communication with the commercial payers. Uh, we are, uh, we have a good story on the, uh, the clinical benefits and the, the economic benefits that our product provides. Uh, and so, you know, we are working to minimize any impacts there. Uh, but at the same time, it would be, um, it would be too much speculation to, uh, uh, put a range on what type of impact we could potentially see, if any. I got it. Thank you. Um, and and on the the guidance that you gave, uh, that was helpful. You gave some helpful commentary there. In terms of what the mix is looking like um, from new center versus existing center growth, uh, you gave some commentary on quarter. Any commentary you have for you know what the outlook looks like for the back half of this year? Well, I think you know, what what you're seeing, and you know, you saw, we saw the lowest number coming from new store. Uh, this quarter, but I attribute that to being that the, uh, the existing stores were all very depressed in Q2 2020, that being the, uh, you know, I mean, the deepest quarter of impact, uh, in COVID. And you, and you still were seeing some in, some very real COVID impacts in Q3 of 2020. And so just, you know, the fact that those existing stores are rebounding, um, significantly, you know, is, is going to make the component of growth that's coming from new store lower. But, uh, you know, we, we've been very happy overall with, uh, our new store account openings. And, uh, so we're, we're very confident that we continue to make uh, the progress we want to make in uh, new store account openings, new store openings. Great. Thank you. Your next question comes from Margaret Kaiser from William Blair. Your line's open. Hi, everyone. This is Brandon on for Margaret. Thanks for taking the question. Um, we're still kind of punching in the numbers here, obviously, in our model, but it, it, it feels like in the beginning of this year, uh, or at least year-to-date so far, that the ECG market and, and pass-based ECG specifically is accelerating, um, it, especially given the guidance that you gave uh, so just curious, you know, what if you guys could talk about what you're seeing in the field? It seems like the adoption of pest-based ECGs is is moving along nicely, perhaps even faster than in the past. Um, you know, would, is that a fair characterization? And if so, what what kind of um, drivers are are, uh, are making that happen out in the field? Well, I, I think I think the biggest thing that I would say is that uh, you know our new account openings. Um, and the interest in new accounts and in, in, in signing on to our product uh, remains very high. It remains high by historical levels, and we continue to work through that. I mean, we would, we would say this is the, uh, the clinical efficacy of our product and the, uh, and the, economic, the, you know, the economic benefits that our product provides. So it, you know, I think it's just a continuation of the trends we've been seeing. Uh, as we mentioned in the call, you know, we did see 
you know, in March, April, and May in particular, we saw very significant strength in the existing accounts, uh, increasing volumes, and, and we do interpret that to be that, uh, you know, that, that is, you know, as COVID continues to impact people's behaviors, that that was, you know, a low point in caseloads and that there was you know, some acceleration of patients coming back to see their doctors in that time period. Okay. Uh, that's helpful. And, um, it's maybe, maybe looking in a, a longer term and maybe towards TAM expansion. I think it's been something like 10 months now since we saw the presentation of M-stops, which, uh, was, was all around pretty overwhelmingly positive data. Um, I can appreciate that maybe we'll, we'll wait to get more definitive, um, updates on TAM expansion, but any updates that you could provide in terms of what's been going on behind the scenes, uh, enga- engaging with payers, um, I think Edna was the one specifically that M-Stops was run with. Anything that they saw intriguing there that that maybe uh, leaves you any more or less encouraged for that TAM expansion opportunity? Let me uh, let Dan take that question. Yeah, thanks, Brandon, uh, for the question. I would I would say, you know, in the early days of our market development and, and selling, you know, targeted detection programs, we believe the value proposition is is resonating with with payers and integrated payer providers. Um, so we're very excited about the progress we've made in, in the last six months or in maybe the 10 months uh, since MSOPs in our you know, early go-to-market strategy. Uh, we have a great team behind this effort and, and are pushing it forward. Um, you know, we're certainly looking to, you know, looking to build this out even, even more fully. And there's, there's aspects of the service or capabilities that we're, that we're adding here to um, still leveraging our core you know, ZOXT platform, uh, but building around that. And we look forward to, you know, sharing more, more details as we make, make progress there. Got it. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Your next question comes from Cecilia Furlong for Morgan Stanley. Your line is open. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for taking the question. This is uh, Calvin on for Cecilia. Just one on reimbursement and one on data. Um, the first one is just understanding, you know, you, you believe next July when the parole stool comes out, uh, you know, that would be the more major catalyst versus this November, December. My understanding, though, was, you know, the lack of an update in July didn't necessarily preclude, I guess, a development in, in the final rule. So I'm, I'm just curious. You know, have you seen to date any public comments of, you know, significance either from societies like ACC, HRS, or other participants? You know, I think last year during the comment period, we, we saw comments from not only societies, but also from some of their competitors as well. So just curious, anything to date worth, worth calling out um, or expect to see, perhaps, that could make a real impact into, into the final rule? Yeah, Calvin, it's Dan. I can, I can address that. So I would say as it relates to the proposed rule, yeah, we were we were encouraged and and do view the proposed rule this year as as positive progress. You know, CMS continues to seek information and is looking for ways to appropriately price the service. Um, it is clear there are challenges in how best you know to price uh, vertically integrated AI based business models like our own. But but CMS is actively um, actively seeking ways to solve for this, both both specifically with our own code as well as you know, seeking comments from stakeholders around, you know, AI-based services. So we we intend to use the open comment period between now and mid-September to provide our perspectives and, and also work with other industry, industry stakeholders to provide comments that we hope are helpful to CMS. So we will continue to seek, you know, national pricing for calendar year 2022, and that remains a possibility, uh, which is encouraging. But we do believe the more likely outcome, as we said in our prepared remarks that we we will remain contractor pricing for 2022 and, and re-enter the cycle next year. Understood. And just one quick one on M-Stops. I, I think we were expecting to see some cost-effectiveness data, either at mid-year this year or in the back half. Just, you know, wanted to check in on that. Are we still expecting to see that in, in, the, in the near term? And can you maybe just comment on the confidence in, in how good the data set is going to be? Thanks. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is Dan. I'll, I'll take that one again. Um, so for on MSTOPS, you know, the data that was released at AHA last year, we believe the publication around you know, the clinical outcomes data is coming shortly. Uh, don't have any specific 
timing or details to point you to, but but do believe that's um, in the near term. Uh, for the economic data piece, that remains in the works, um, but but delayed a bit from our original thinking that it would be you know mid this year. Um, I don't have updated timing to give you today, but other than to say that remains in the works. Um, uh, but I would also say that we do believe that, you know, having this data and the economic data in particular peer-reviewed and published will be, you know, a big boost to our efforts. But we also have our own economic models um, and can work with, you know, payers and integrated payer providers to review their data, their specific data, and have a discussion around, you know, the economic benefits of a targeted detection program. And that's, that is an element of our, our go-to-market strategy today within within Silent AF. Got it. Thanks so much. Your next question comes from Bill Bavanik from Canaccord. Your line's open. Thanks. Um, good evening. Um, so just I'm, I'm going to focus on the model. I mean, you guys are really having success in, in driving uh, revenue, and I'm kind of curious – if you broke that up, you know, you, you've seen this big increase in the ZOAT business, which I would believe has a pretty significant price premium. So what, what does the underlying unit growth look like just in patients year over year? Um, I don't know if you shared that, and I apologize if you did. Yeah, we, we haven't shared that specific number. You know, we, we, we've given you the, the impact, you know, on how to adjust for the uh, – a quarter of our volume that is, uh, uh, you know, Medicare pricing. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you do the math. To, you know, 25% Medicare pricing, you know, price went from a 311 gross to, uh, you know, a 115 gross. And that will get you in the ballpark of how to translate this, uh, the magnitude of the revenue growth into uh, closer to a volume growth. And then, I mean, obviously, ZOAT has grown significantly, and, and you are correct that, uh, you know, ZOAT, particularly with the decline in ZOXT pricing, is, uh, you know, it, it's a more, more than 2x the, uh, the ZOXT um, price at this point. Okay, and then forgive me if you answered this question, but the, the uptake of the AT, I mean, are you seeing some of the physicians transfer over to that product just because of the pricing on the XT? No, I wouldn't say we have any indication that, uh, you know, I, I think the physicians, um, you know, it doesn't directly impact on what the Medicare reimbursement level is. Uh, when I look at AT, I, I would point to a couple of factors. And first, we're extremely happy with the uh, level of volume growth uh, and the increased adoption that we're seeing on ZOAT. And, and we definitely highlight that, um, you know, Compared to, you know, we're still well below 10% penetrated in the MCT market as, as compared to where we are, you know, at a higher penetration rate with ZOXT. So there, there's quite a bit of room for ZOAT to continue to grow at a good clip. But, um, uh, you know, but I would say, you know, our, our sales force is getting steadily, you know, the longer we've had the product in the field, uh, our sales force is uh, getting better. Uh, and more efficient at selling the product. Um, we've had a very good clip of setting up of, uh, you know, selling and setting up new accounts. I mean, I mean primarily accounts that currently do ZOXT, uh, you know, but there is, you know, a significantly greater amount of that AT growth is coming from the new store volumes as opposed to on the uh, XT side. Great. Thanks for taking my questions. Your next question comes from David Rescott from Shoeis. Your line's open. Hi guys, it's Sam on for for David. Thanks for taking taking our questions. Just the first one, going to reimbursement again. Um, with MAC pricing in, in 2022, how do we think about the potential change we can see there? Is it possible that the MAX could could Increase payment uh, a, at a significant rate, or, or are we more likely to see more of a smaller sequential step up? Yeah, hey Sam and Stan, I I can take that one, and and Doug can 
Yeah, I didn't think he sees uh, fit. So I, I would make a couple comments. Obviously, we're going to stop short of you know providing a providing guidance on what a potential outcomes, uh, what an, a potential outcome is. Um, but we'll reiterate a couple points. You know, one, we remain very encouraged by the willingness of Novitas and the other Macs um, to explore an alternative pricing model, which again we believe is you know better representation of the true cost of delivering the service. Um, and as mentioned previously, you know, the reason it's a better representation of the true cost of delivering the service is, you know, it, it includes historical R&D costs as an example. And, and remember that the challenge we're facing is that we are a vertically integrated service provider, and there are no commercial invoices that CMS can point to and say that this is a commercially validated price, you know, of the supplier or equipment that is used in this service, um, you know, such as our wearable biosensor and software tools. If there were, you know, one could argue that the the historical cost to develop the hardware or software, the cost to produce, the cost to sell and market the product, you know, as well as the overhead would all be captured in that commercial price of the hardware or software. Um, so we believe, you know, this alternative model solves for a lot of those challenges, and, and Novitas and the other Macs, you know, while not providing any commitments, are willing to review the data. So we're we're optimistic. Uh, optimistic that this is a viable strategy to more appropriate pricing. Um, you know, obviously, with the caveat, we cannot provide any assurances that Novitas or the other Macs will, you know, ultimately update pricing based on this information, nor nor the timing. Uh, but our focus is, you know, on presenting them this information and, and continuing the discussions with them. And again, we we remain encouraged uh, that they remain at the table with us to discuss. It. Great. That's uh, that's helpful. And just I'll just ask one more on on reimbursement and, and yeah, you know, provide whatever data you can. But uh, if we if we think about is there is there maybe a level on on Mac reimbursement, say maybe like a two hundred or, or two hundred fifty dollar reimbursement for Macs, where where you feel like commercial payers may be less likely to to shift their rates significantly uh, going forward, and just any color you can confront provide about that uh, differential would be really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so this this is Doug. Um, I mean, obviously, the higher the level of MAC pricing is, uh, the less impact we would expect there to be or the less risk we would expect there to be to commercial payers. You know, but I think we need to be careful to spec not to speculate here. And then, I mean, the other thing I would say is that uh, while we're still in carrier pricing, you know, I mean, the, the commercial players are very aware that this is a, you know, this is a process that's still underway on the uh, Medicare side. So I, I, I do think that national, when we achieve national pricing, that is likely to be more impactful and more, you know, taken into stronger account by the commercial payers than a MAC price, which is going to be seen as an intermediate step uh, in a longer process. And, and that is very much what we have been seeing with the with this year's MAC pricing development. So I, like I said, I, I would I would give you the guidance that MAC pricing changes to MAC pricing is going to be less influential to the commercial payers than the, than the CMS national pricing would be. Your next question comes from Suraj Kalia from Oppenheimer and Company. Your line's open. Good afternoon, everyone. Doug, can you hear me all right? I can hear you, Suraj. Perfect. So, Doug, uh, forgive me if you mentioned this already, just jumping in between calls. What was contractual allowance in the quarter? Uh, and I'll just throw my other question also. And Doug, you mentioned about gross margins being lower. I didn't catch the reason for that. And if you could also just expand on your, your comment about revenue cycle management improvement, how would that uh, just kind of put some additional color on that to help us understand, you know, how OPEX could be reduced, margins could be improved over time. Any color would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for taking my questions. Okay. No problem. So, uh, so first, you know, contractual allowances is how we, you know, account for the difference between the contractual price that we sign with the commercial payers 
and the amount that they that the commercial payer actually pays us. Um, and uh, so, you know, during the, during the quarter, uh, we actually had very good performance of improving the collections on you know that on past contractual allowances uh, with a number of both with a, with a number of commercial payers, um, which you know which resulted in us taking some one-time adjust favorable adjustments to revenue. Um, but anyway, but that but that is that is what the contractual allowances is and. And it's really the difference between, you know, when we close, when we close each quarter, we have an expected level of what those contractual allowances, i.e. what the contractual, what the level of, um, you know, holdbacks that the, that the commercial payers are going to be, going to pay us. And then there's always a true up that if we've collected more or, you know, potentially less, but in this case it was significantly more, then was expected over those historical periods, then that results in a favorable adjustment. Um, so when you look at revenue cycle, there's three components to revenue cycle. Uh, one component is exactly what we were saying, those contractual allowances. Um, and when we improve contractual allowances, you know, that's going to result in top-line growth. And then the other two components of revenue cycle are bad debt, which in this case is non-payment by the patients, um, and in, in, the, in the commercial market, we were, we treat bad debt on the patient side uh, as an opex charge, uh, an SG&A charge, and then, this, and then the other component is the actual cost of uh, processing the claim. That we have some third-party uh, assistance, and then we have an internal team that is uh, processing the claims. And so the opportunity here is to reduce that claims, reduce those costs, with, with the largest impact of that being, um, you know, and we don't disclose the specific numbers, but, uh, you know, when we file initial claims, X percentage of those claims will be denied, and then we have a claims team that will go in and work those denials, and X percentage will be reduced to Y percentage. And so, so you can see that if, if we can reduce that initial denial rate by pick your number, 25, 40%, then that's going to result in first better, uh, claim, better collections performance. Uh, but second, you know, most of my costs in the revenue cycle are based on working those denied claims. And so if I have 25 or 40% less denials up front, then that's going to cost me significantly less on a per-claim basis to work the denials. Doug, forgive me. The contractual allowance was 10% before this quarter. Did it go up, remain the same? Uh, we, we, haven't, we haven't disclosed the exact percentage of contractual allowances. In the commercial market, it has historically been in the low teens. Thank you. There is no further question this time. You may continue. Okay. I would like to thank everyone for joining. We're very happy with the quarter we've had and um, look forward to sharing more information as we go forward. Thank you. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you all for joining. You may now disconnect.